Welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast, produced by the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. The CWD provides the historical context and strategic analysis to inform understanding of today's geopolitical challenges, promoting discussion through research, teaching, consultancy and public events. Hello and welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast. I'm Dr. Sophie Ambler, lecturer in later medieval history and deputy director of the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Anais Waag, who is Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in the School of History and Heritage at the University of Lincoln. Anais specialises in gender studies and women's history in medieval Europe, taking a comparative perspective to examine how female power was formally and publicly expressed in England, France and the Iberian Peninsula. She undertook her doctorate at King's College London and was Scaludi Fellow at the Institute of Historical Research. Her publications include Gender and the Language of Politics in 13th Century Queen's Letters, published in Historical Research, Rethinking Battle Commemoration, Female Letters and the Myth of the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in the Journal of Medieval History, and most recently, The Letters of Eleanor and Marguerite of Provence in 13th Century Anglo-French Relations in the series 13th Century England. She's currently working on a monograph drawn from her doctoral work while pursuing her new research funded by the Leverhulme Trust. This is a comparative study of the earliest female claims to royal thrones in Aragon, Castile-Leon, England, France, Jerusalem, Navarre, Portugal, Scotland and Sicily, which will shed new light on both the symbolic and practical means by which royal heiresses across medieval Western Europe and the Mediterranean managed, represented and manipulated royal power. Anais, welcome to the podcast and thanks very much for joining us. Hello, Sophie, and thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and join you. Thank you. And perhaps we can begin by just giving listeners an impression of the world in which the women you research operated in 13th century Europe and England, France and Spain. I suppose for those unfamiliar with the 13th century, it it might not have the same cachet as the 14th century and the Hundred Years' War and all those the famous sort of battles and campaigns and and political figures of that age. What was going on in 13th century Europe at the time that particularly impacted upon the women that you study? Absolutely. So conflict is still very much a key factor unfolding at this point and particularly relevant to the women I study because of the marriages that most of them enter as part of treaties um, agreed between various kingdoms and rulers and such. So in, for example, the case of Blanche of Castile, her marriage to the young Prince Louis, later Louis VIII, is agreed as part of a treaty between her uncle John of England, King of England, and Philip Augustus in 1200. Later on, we see that Eleanor of Provence is in a lot of ways selected or most likely selected as Henry III's queen because her sister, Marguerite of Provence, was already married to King Louis IX of France. And so this seemed a useful 
family alliance that does in fact prove quite useful and is arguably a key factor in the peace agreement reached in 1259 between England and France, which it is recorded that King Louis did kind of make a grand statement at the banquet about how this peace was brought about because his children and Henry's children are first cousins and therefore it was in the interest of all to reach an agreement. On the other hand, Marguerite of Provence's marriage to Louis the Ninth uh, is in large part agreed because of the ongoing conflict that is existing within France between the the Capetian monarchy and the French and the the nobles uh, in the south of France. And Provence was held from the Holy Roman Empire, but the marriage because Marguerite was the eldest of the count's surviving daughters, this allowed uh, the Capetian crown a bit of a foothold in Provence and, and possibly a future claim to those lands to be brought into France. This theme of conflict and marriage continues in the Iberian Peninsula as well. Uh, one of the other women I study is Berengela of Castile and her marriage to her father's first cousin, Alphonse IX of Castile, uh, which was immediately condemned on consanguinity grounds, is really an attempt to bring about peace between these two kingdoms that had a long history of being a political unity, a, political, a united political entity, and then being split among sons and then warring and then being united again. And so the marriage was very much an attempt to pacify them in that way. So just a lot of conflict in that sense. And then in the Iberian Peninsula, you're also getting conflict amongst the Christian amongst the Christian rulers, but also against the Muslim rulers that you find there. Mm. So these women really were linchpins in in European diplomacy at the time, both in in their marriages and also in in their actual sort of operations during their careers. What was it exactly that drew you in that really appealed to you about? This, this period and these figures as a topic for research, what struck your imagination? Yeah, so it was it was a bit of a long, a long burner, to be honest. I my interest, it, it all kind of comes from an interest in Anglo-French relations, which was first peaked in as an undergraduate and kind of learning about the dynamics between France and England in the lead up to the Hundred Years' War and, and kind of how they evolved as political entities in the aftermath. And so when I started my MA, I wanted to explore this relationship further, but kind of thought, wanted to find a, a, an alternative way of looking at it because it is quite a studied topic. And so I thought about marriage alliances and the dynamics there. And that's how I came to Eleanor and Marguerite of Provence, who were sisters who married a king of France and a king of England, and really had a tangible impact on that relationship. So that was my MA dissertation was looking at their queenship at that time and the effect it had on the relationship between the kingdoms through a study of their letters. And then as I progressed my doctoral studies, I built on this and and expanded on it by looking, I continued to look at Eleanor and Marguerite, but I built it out and also considered Marguerite's mother-in-law, Blanche of Castile, 
Blanche's sister, Berengela of Castile, and a, um, a fifth queen, Violante of Hungary, who was queen of Aragon at the same time. And you've looked in your in your doctoral work and, and subsequently you've looked closely at the letters that were exchanged amongst these women and, and were directed to other recipients. Could you tell us a little bit about these letters? What is the source base that, that you've been able to draw upon and, and how do they survive? And, and also, what do we know about how these were produced? Yeah, so I love I love letters. I kind of in some ways stumbled into it, but then was completely sucked in. It's just a fascinating source base. And they, they really give you tangible evidence of how these women participated, as opposed to obviously you can have chronicle accounts, but those are less verifiable. A letter in your hand is, uh, is great in that sense. The source base is substantial depending on where you are. Survival is unfortunately a bit uneven. The first unevenness is between the preservation of men's letters and women's letters, unsurprisingly. The men were more generally integrated, the production of their letters were more fully integrated into government structures, into royal chanceries, and therefore you get a higher preservation of them. But there is still a substantial number of letters that survive. Eleanor, for example, has a huge number at um, 222. And it's that that really kind of pulled me in, in terms of using this as a source that hasn't been, that, that is largely untapped in a lot of ways. Eleanor's surviving letters kind of reflect another factor, which is the fact that it's, survival is quite uneven across Europe, and largely shaped by the various kingdoms' own practices. So Eleanor, for example, has 222 letters. Marguerite only has 43 in comparison. Blanche of Castile only has four that I found thus far. Berengela of Castile has 16 and Violante has nine. So there's this huge disproportion of, of survival, largely due to preservation practices. Indeed, of Marguerite's 43 letters, all but 11 are actually preserved within the English archives, um, just to kind of really illustrate how England is so significant, it plays such a huge role in the preservation of letters compared to other places. The Crown of Aragon did eventually become a huge place for preservation of, of documents, um, especially following the conquest of the Kingdom of Valencia, the capture of the city of Chatiba, where the Muslims produced paper was revolutionary for Aragonese archives because paper was just cheaper to make, so it was easier to produce more. A later queen, um, Violante de Bar, who was a consort in the uh, second half of the 15th century, has something like 9,000 surviving letters, which obviously dwarfs <laughs> the, the letters of my, of my queens, but also kind of highlights, even though that was later, it does highlight that what we have that survives is minuscule compared to what was produced, unfortunately, for us. In terms of production of these letters, we're still trying to figure out some of the, the minor details and such. The letters themselves are, are written out, physically written out by a scribe. Who the scribe was, what the scribe's place was within the household, the chancery, is unclear in some instances, especially within England and France. In the Iberian Peninsula, they have this fascinating practice of 
of making an inscription of the scribe who has composed the document or the letter. And there we see references sometimes to that letter being physically written by a scribe at the instruction of the Queen's Chancellor. So we have much clearer evidence there that the Iberian Queens had a kind of a full functioning writing apparatus at their disposal. But we need more evidence, but it's quite likely that this was the case for for queens in France and England as well. Like they, they're constantly writing. They they have that available to them. And then in terms of the content, it seems pretty clear that women, that anybody writing a letter, so not just queens, but even a king's aristocracy, there are varying degrees of involvement. So there are specific letters where you can see that they were involved in the minute detail of the, the structure, the content, the word choice, everything. And then there's other letters that you can kind of see the person said, oh, well, just as long as you commit, convey this kind of main point, do it how you like. And in terms of how how these letters were put together and, and the uh, the role of these queens and their scribes in, in, in collaborating on, on these letters, there were all sorts of conventions that governed how a letter should be put together and how it should be structured. Could you tell us a little bit about those and, and how important were they? How much freedom, I suppose, did the, the writers have to make these letters their own or, or were they governed by convention? This was probably one of the more exciting elements of my research, I think. Um, I so, so there are specific letter writing conventions. It's called the, the, the Arts Dictamnis, um, the art of letter writing. And these conventions are compiled in manuals that scribes were trained with. So in this sense, the, the physical composition of letters is a physical activity done by the scribe, but also kind of the letter itself is organized by the scribe it is very clear that it's not just the scribes and the chancery who are aware of these, everybody involved in composing a letter is aware of these. And so you have, technically you have five parts to a letter and these, the, the theory would tell you that these letters, all letters have to include all five of these elements. So you have the salutatio, which is kind of the, the, the start of the, the salutation, the start, and that, that itself includes the intitulatio, the inscriptio, and the and the greeting. So intitulatio is how the sender entitles themselves. The inscriptio is how they address the receiver of the letter. And there's all these conventions that dictate how this needs to be organized. So if you're if you are of a superior status, so a king or a queen writing to an aristocrat, someone a subject, you would put your name first and then their name. If you're writing to a superior, you put their name first and your name second. If you're writing to an equal, it would be polite to put the other person's name first. It was kind of a, a sign of deference. And then the, the, the greeting that came at the end could just be a way of kind of further emphasizing your relationship, um, your, your affection for that person. Um, etc. So that kind of is the first part. And then and then the second part, the second part of the letter is called the captatio benevolentiae, was the term I use, also often referred to as the exordium. And this, the theory kind of identifies it as one of the five parts, but I think it's best to think of it as kind of a sentiment that aims to capture the recipient's benevolence, to put them in a, in a, 
in a good frame of mind to be receptive to what you're going to ask of them. And this, this really is an element that permeates the whole letter. So the proper ordering of titles is in fact a form of captatio benevolentiae because you could, and indeed this happens, cause offense by not using the proper order. So, so that is one element. Describing someone as your beloved brother or your beloved sister, that can also be part of it. Using, um, addressing them as your excellence throughout the letter multiple times. Using the correct titles, as in like land titles, is also, is also important. So that's more of something that permeates the whole letter. So then, yes, so then you have the um, narratio, in which you kind of provide a context for the petition that you're about to make again, can be useful to, to throw in some captatio benevolentiae elements there. Then you get the petition itself. Um, and then you get the conclusion in which the sender will often, or the theory says the sender can like reiterate their petition and kind of extol the, bene the benefits of, of saying yes, etc. though this doesn't always happen. Um, and actually what I find in my letters is often it's just kind of a reaffirmation of the relationship between the two involved in this in the letter yeah so those are those are kind of the, the five parts and when I was going into my research I was kind of like this you know that we're gonna it, you can identify each part this will be easy and what becomes really clear is that while the theory is there the practice is not quite that what came out of my doctoral research is really that the arts dictaminis is a inherently flexible and ambiguous tool for communication and that it's usefully so. It can be used and manipulated by everybody to convey pointed messages within their letters. I suppose that brings us on to uh, an interesting question in that you have been looking at particularly um, the letters of royal women, but you've been you've been contextualizing these with, with male um, authored letters as well, and looking at the exchanges between these various um, royal women across Europe um, in in international relations, if that's not too modern a term, or, or kind of diplomatic relations between these kingdoms. And one of the things that you you've been asking is how far are these letters and the ways that these women use or manipulate the conventions of letter writing in these um, in these exchanges? How much is that gendered? And I suppose this goes back to that there's been such a movement over the past few decades of really looking at the role of women in politics in, in the Middle Ages and looking at gender and what that means. And there's been that's really changed our, our impressions and understandings of the period. But I suppose one question that, to be a bit provocative, might come out of that is, do you think historians have perhaps sometimes overemphasised the gender aspects of politics and diplomatic relations? And how do your letters help us to, to imagine whether there was a strong gendered aspect to, to uh, women's role in, in diplomacy in this period? Yeah, so that um, there's two ways of kind of thinking about that. And so I'm, I'm going to start first with my own research and kind of what came out of my analysis of the letters. And I, I very much went into this with the plan that I was going to identify a female language of power or 
not even that, that I was going to identify what characterized the female language of power with the presumption that there was indeed a female language of power. What came out of my research was, was that in terms of letters, in terms of the epistolary language of power, there really isn't a distinctly female or male language of power. And, and something I forgot to mention earlier, and thank, thank you for pointing out, is that this research, the study of Queen's letters has to be done in conjunction with the study of King's letters and aristocratic letters, both male and, by both men and women. You can't identify anything as characteristic if you're not actually looking at what others are doing as well. Um, so that is that is an important element and, and something that I kind of was going to use the, the, male, the men's letters as a way to kind of pull up the differences between the two. But it just turns out that they actually use quite similar language and that there's in fact really a, a shared discourse of power that appears in these letters, which is characterized by a use and manipulation of the arts dictamines, as I mentioned, and also the rhetoric of family as a tool for communication. Both of them are being used as tools for communication, but that there is kind of a gendered register within this shared language. So the women that I studied had a tendency to use particular formulations and such, for example, when interceding on behalf of someone else. So, so there were elements that were specific to women, but in general, you see men and women use the same language throughout. So that was that was exciting for me. Very much so. And I suppose, how does that help us, do you think, in the big picture, to ask about how royal power operated more broadly? Do we have to think again, perhaps less about queenship and kingship, but, but about royal power and its operation? Yes. So I think, I do feel that that is very much where the historiography is finally starting to go towards. And, and that is that is exciting. But it is true that it has in a lot of ways remained segregated. And there is often a focus on queenship studies, gender studies. And gender is absolutely a useful category for, for study within the historiography. I think a lot has come out of this focus. And, and a lot of what's being done within queenship studies is essentially mirroring what had been done with men in political history um, throughout. And what, what's kind of starting to happen now is, or, and hopefully will happen more going forward, is that these two are kind of brought together. And that, as, you, as we were saying before, it, we don't have to think of kind of gendered power in that sense, but rather as royal power and what are the various elements of royal power. And, and I do think that in this sense, queenship studies has done a lot to kind of advance and progress that part of uh, political theory. And that in some ways, perhaps it needs to be embraced more fully from those outside of queenship studies. And that, that's why it has often remained segregated in, in some ways. But one of the, the dominant point of discussion is this idea of plural monarchy. And this largely came out of Iberian studies because it's the plurality of monarchy within the Iberian kingdoms is so much more evident. Women just have a more prominent, royal women have a more prominent place within documents chiefly, but in, in various aspects. And so, and it's not just the queen, it's the, the infantas, the, the daughters of kings, the sisters of kings, etc. So this kind of brought out this idea of 
Iberian monarchies being plural monarchies, but it's not exclusive to the Iberian Peninsula. It's very much true of European monarchies in the Middle Ages in general. Monarchy is not just the king. It's and it's not just the king and the queen either. It's it's the 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 royal family. And so I think that's that's kind of where it seems to be going now. And so in that sense, gender is important and has a place, but just in terms of kind of helping to understand the dynamics. And I suppose that's where particularly your, your comparative approach um, can really help us by use, by looking at all of these different regions in medieval Europe and how they can help to shine a light on one another. And I suppose perhaps it's, perhaps we could turn now to some of the content of, of particular content of these letters and some examples of the women that, that you've been looking at. And perhaps we can start with Eleanor of Provence, Queen of England, married to King Henry III in the 13th century, um, whose letters, as you said, uh, survive in, in a much greater quantity than others. And she was really pulled in to some of the, the big events of, of the day, um, particularly the Civil War um, that occurred in England and, and brought in the French as well in the early 1260s after Simon de Montfort seized power from her husband, King Henry III, and, and um, Eleanor was involved in, in trying to restore her family to the throne. I think but perhaps could you could you talk a little bit about what Eleanor got up to um, in this war and, and what we learned from her letters and in other sources perhaps as well about her activities? So I don't know for, I mean, I suppose we can have favorite historical figures or subjects of study, but I will say Eleanor of Provence is my favorite queen of all the queens I study. I, I'm not entirely sure why. I think there's just something about her and how she comes through in the sources that I quite like. <laughs> and she she did, she had a, a, a fascinating life. And her sister as queen of France provides an interesting counterpoint if we think of comparative studies in terms of what a queen isn't allowed to do compared to what Eleanor really got to do. Um, so yeah, so as you said, she was very involved in Henry III's government, less so in the early, in the perhaps the first decade or two of her life. She was 12 when she married Henry. So, and he was, I think he was, I believe he was 27. So not, there wasn't really any place for a 12 year old there, but once she had, once she gave birth to her, to Edward I, who was also her first child and therefore had provided an heir, that was helpful for her place in government. And then when she had the spare, that was also helpful. And, and as she had children and her position at court really grew in that sense, Henry also really brought in and allowed room for many of her relatives uh, within his court, uh, which provided Eleanor with a power base within court, but also was a source of uh, one of the causes for the, the conflict that then <laughs> took place in the 1250s. When, yeah, because there were so many of them and then also Henry's half siblings. You know a lot of this a lot more than I do in terms of the rest of the, the rest of the, con uh, the rest of the, the political context. No, not at all. Well, um, it's really interesting to hear, I think, or for people to hear how Eleanor was involved in, in the war that, that broke out because she was really pivotal, wasn't she, in, in the Civil War? She was, yes. So at some point, as kind of hostilities were, were growing, both Henry and Eleanor left England for the continent. Henry eventually returned, but Eleanor stayed. And then following, as the conflict kind of escalated and um, Simon de Montfort 
took power, Eleanor was still in France. And while there, did two things, really. She assumed royal control or royal authority within the remaining continental holdings that the English crown still had, so Gascony. And there, there are actually several documents surviving that show that she was in contact with the Senescence call there and conveying information and being this was being followed. Of course, Louis and Marguerite um, in the Capetian court recognized her authority there. Obviously, Marguerite more than Louis, as Louis kind of tried to <laughs> straddle both sides, I suppose. And the second role she played was in raising military aid in the form of men and money, making use of her family networks, making use of her history with um, Italian bankers. So she got some loans that way. But a lot of the support that she was able to raise on behalf of the English crown was through her family network. So her, her Savoyard relatives from her mother's side of the family. And then with Marguerite, we see this coordinated effort to recruit French nobles to the English cause to, to support in some way or another. We have some letters that survive of both of, of the sisters writing to Marguerite's brother-in-law, Louis's younger brother, Alphonse of Poitiers. Um, really trying to get him to to, to support the uh, English crown. First, they ask for men in boats. And then as he kind of keeps refusing their assistance, they keep downgrading and they're kind of like, oh, well, maybe you can just offer some sound advice and or, you know, let, you know, let, uh, let our English, let our ships kind of dock at, at, at harbor at La Rochelle. So they kind of deescalate, but still kind of very actively trying to get his support. And what's really interesting about these letters that survive is you can see that they are very much coordinating these efforts. We don't have any surviving letters between the sisters, much to my despair. I would love to have even just one surviving letter. But you can tell through other letters with references to letters that they wrote each other. And in these exchanges with Alphonse, there's just too much similarity within letter content. And we know the sisters weren't always together throughout this. So they obviously were in contact from afar. Um, and so you just kind of see them coordinating these efforts and really trying to, to get Alphonse's support, even though ultimately they didn't. So Eleanor plays this, this important role in raising an army and raising a fleet in support of her family's cause. Of course, it never sails in the end for one reason or another, but perhaps this is a historic role that queens can play in in the Middle Ages in raising armies to support their husband's cause or their family's cause. And this was an important expectation of their office, do you think? Absolutely. I think there is often still this idea that medieval queens were, were peace weavers, um, and they absolutely were that, but they also were very much active participants in war in every capacity short of actually physically fighting in battle, because that was just something that they weren't allowed to do. Eleanor is a great example. We see her her very involved in supporting her husband and her son in regaining the throne. Marguerite provides a great example a few years later in a dispute with another brother-in-law, Charles of Anjou, who was doubly her brother-in-law because he married their youngest sister, but Charles of Anjou was himself Louis IX's youngest brother. So a very intricate family affair. And essentially what happened is that, to go back a little bit, when Ramon Berenguer V of Provence died, three of his four daughters had been married. And so he made 
he named his youngest unmarried daughter heiress because he wanted to avoid a dispute between England and France over Provence. So he named Beatrice his heir, and so she inherited the county and then married Charles of Anjou. Beatrice died 20 years later in uh, 1267, and Charles, who had been ruling Provence in her name, continued to, uh, rather than have his, um, his nobles swear fealty to their son, who was technically Beatrice's heir. And he also refused to settle Eleanor and Marguerite's dowries, which was still owed all these years later. And basically, because of all this, Marguerite then decided to challenge Charles of Anjou's lordship over Provence. And um, in doing so, essentially succeeded in actually raising an army herself as well and got support from various relatives, but not exclusively relatives. A lot of support from everywhere around Provence, but not so much within Provence, which is perhaps part of why it never really took off entirely. And there's a bunch of letters that survive from this period as well. And she is very actively kind of writing to Edward, trying to get him to make good on his promise to assist her. And so you have letters where she's telling him the movements of, of, her, of, of her army, essentially, I mean, or collection of uh, supporters. There's another letter where she really lists who all her supporters are and reiterates that this is her, her legal right. So she was very involved in this process and she herself is with all these supporters. She's not kind of, she didn't stay in Paris and kind of coordinate from afar. She is feet on the ground there. And then, to, I mean, to give some other examples of, as well of, of women as active participants, of course, Blanche of Castile played a significant role in concluding the Albigensian Crusade and solidifying Capetian authority in, in, in southern France in that sense. And two other letters, which I think we will be, will be discussed soon, about the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in, in the Iberian Peninsula really highlight that women did have knowledge of military tactics and military practice and such. Women, yes, just to reiterate, women were very involved. <laughs> and I suppose in, in that realm of, of their involvement, um, sort of in the thick of military affairs and on the ground, that takes us also into Marguerite's role on crusade as well, because her husband, Louis IX, led, led the seventh crusade to in, into Egypt. And she was part of that expedition, wasn't she? And, and she was very heavily involved. And what did she get up to um, on, on the Seventh Crusade? Yes, so so she 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 was she was very much there, as was her sister, actually Beatrice of Provence, who was there with Charles of Anjou. They were all they were all together. We don't know much of what she got up to, except for one very important instance, which is following the capture of Damietta, Louis and his army decide to move on to Cairo, and it's doesn't work out for them. They're captured. I believe Louis in captivity for about five months. Um, and during this time, Marguerite had been pregnant, was heavily pregnant, and so gave birth soon after Louis' capture. And kind of a nice side story is that she named the child Jean, and he has been remembered as Jean Tristan because, as Jean de Joinville tells us, he was born at such a, a moment of grief for the couple in that sense. But when when Louis is captured, uh, Marguerite essentially takes control of the remaining forces that have stayed in Damietta. And she played a role in convincing the, the Pisans and the Genoese not to abandon the, the crusaders in Damietta, but to stay and continue to provide support for them. And 
she had a role in kind of ensuring that the ransom was paid or the, the first installation of the ransom was paid to ensure that Louis was, was released from captivity. So she, in, in some ways, comes through as almost um, when the king is gone, she's kind of the second in command in terms of leading, leading the crusade. And who better to rely on, perhaps, for Louis than his wife and queen, um, Marguerite? And I suppose that, that takes us on to the question of not only that active involvement in, in military affairs, but what you've also shown is the important involvement of some of these royal women in the commemoration of conflict, and particularly the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in, in 1212. And I suppose perhaps it's, it's useful just to begin there by sketching a little bit about Las Navas, because it is really, it's traditionally been seen as a, as a pivotal episode in, in Spanish history, and it, it's sort of taken on over the centuries, these sort of semi-mythic proportions. Why was the Battle of, of Las Navas de Tolosa important? Or was it important? Um, yes, so it, it was absolutely a historic event. It, it, it had historical significance, and this, this was clear to contemporaries in the moment. However, it its status as kind of the moment that changed everything in Christian-Muslim relations within the Iberian Peninsula, which has persisted basically until the 20th century, is now finally kind of being, being challenged. And the Christian victory is seen more as part of an ongoing evolution of political of the dynamics between between both sides but that is that is a that is a new development it has lived in the spanish memory as you said for centuries and has kind of just been amplified and 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 exaggerated over time in in yes and this is this is largely through the kind of chronicle tradition that exists in the that existed in the Iberian Peninsula and I suppose from from the point of view of these royal women or the kind of the broader question of conflict across across Europe and across Christendom this really was uh, Las Navas I suppose and, and one of the reasons that perhaps it was seen as such a big event at the time was it saw the coming together of all of these different policies in the Iberian Peninsula in a, in a united cause to, to take on the next stage of the Reconquista, if we can call it that. Yes, absolutely. It's the, the Iberian Peninsula can be characterized not just by the ongoing conflict between Muslims and Christians, but also between Christian monarchs who are kind of constantly vying for supremacy within within the peninsula and so this is this is quite a significant moment because you do get so many not it's not all of them but most of the rulers are kind of coming together and fighting this this fight together and this this has a role in commemoration because as the significance of this battle becomes clearer and and it it's it's recognized by contemporaries in the moment as being historic but it takes a couple decades for the true kind of consequence of the battle to to be to be noticeable and that's when everybody wants to try to capitalize on their king's association with with the battle and their their role as the you know crusading hero who really guaranteed the victory ensured the victory for for all of the Iberian peninsula 
and some of your royal women had an important part in, in that story in in remembering the battle or describing the battle and playing a part in the development of of the kind of the the legacy of of Las Navas de Chalosa. So so how did they go about doing that or, or who was involved and, and, and what were they doing in terms of commemorating the battle? They did, yeah. So we have we have two two surviving letters written by women that detail events of this battle. We have one that was sent from Berengela of Castile to her sister Blanche of Castile, relaying kind of the events that had that had unfolded and the Christian victory and and especially the role of their father in in this victory. And then there's a second letter which has traditionally been ascribed to Blanche of Castile because the source in which it's preserved says it was sent by Blanche of Castile, but which uh, so it's a letter from Blanche of Castile to Blanche of Navarre. But actually, what I have argued is that there was a bit of a scribal mistake. And I'm, I'm not the first one to argue this, but kind of this is one of the elements of my uh, thesis on, on this event, is that this, there was a scribal error and that where it says be Queen of France, it really should see should say be Queen of Navarre and that therefore this is Berengaria of Navarre, Richard the Lionheart's wife, rather than Blanche of, Cast Blanche of Castile. And there is no, the, the name is actually not even fully spelled out. It just says B. And, and this letter is another version of events, but that, um, and that celebrates the Christian victory, but very much focusing uh, Sancho VII of Navarre as the, the key player in ensuring the battle victory, which is one of the reasons why it just makes more sense to assume that it's Berengaria, who was Sancho's uh, sister, writing to Blanche of Navarre, who was also, they were all siblings. So it just makes more sense to think of it as these two sisters exchanging information about their brother's role in a very important battle. Mm. And, and what do these letters tell us about, about how this battle was remembered or, or about the role of these women in, in commemorating the battle? Um, what, what can we learn from the letters in that sense, do you think? I, I think the letters are important because they show that women were actively involved in the dissemination of, of news relating to important events, historical events, in this, in this case, crusading. I contextualize my examination of this um, in my thesis within the role of aristocratic women, especially in, in preserving and perpetuating crusade narratives within family memory. And I think, and the historiography kind of seems to suggest there that they were, that women weren't always kind of directly participating in this commemoration, but they were key in, in ensuring it was created as patrons and kind of as passing down this information. And that with these letters, what we see is women in this role as kind of observer reporter, um, to use a term that Miriam Shaddis uses, um, and, and relaying and, and magnifying this information in kind of the much more immediate moment of these events unfolding. Berengela's letter kind of says that she has received this information from her father. Her father sent a letter and a messenger. And so she's received that information that way and is now kind of passing it on to ensure that more people learn of this, of this news. 
so I think I think it shows that these women really are these essentially communication nodes that that ensure that relevant information that elevates their family is is circulated widely. And I suppose that it brings us on to so many questions and we, we could just carry on talking and talking about the role of these women in in these conflicts and in across Christendom in terms of both sort of crusade and, and, and wars between polities in Europe and their role there. But I suppose perhaps we could come to to, to conclude how you are taking this kind of research forward in, into your new project because you're you're starting a new period of research um, funded by the Lieberhume Trust at, at Lincoln. Could you just tell us a little bit about that and what kind of things are you going to be looking at and what kind of questions are you going to be asking? Absolutely. So it's, it's my new research is a, a bit of a pivot, slight pivot from my, my previous, my doctoral research uh, in that letters are just an element of my source base rather than the sole element. But I am staying in with Queens in that sense. Um, my new project is Oh, and I'm, I'm, and I'm staying with comparative history, which is my comfort zone, because the new project is, is looking at the earliest claims of royal heiresses to thrones across Europe. And this actually in some ways brings me back to our discussion about gender that we were having earlier, because part of what I'm, I'm hoping to do with, with this project is really think about female rulership and male rulership and what the similarities and differences are in that sense. Um, hence the title, female royal rulership in theory and practice. In theory, these are meant to be rulers. They're, they're, they, it's, their, it's their birthright. Um, they have law on their side, custom on their side for the most part, but it doesn't always unfold in the same way. And Queen's regnant um, or female rulers kind of fall in this in-between place because they're not quite they're not quite kings because I do think gender gen gender is a factor here and power is gendered so despite their claims being theoretically the same as that of a male it doesn't quite unfold the same way but they're also not consorts because a consort derives her power through her relationship to the king. So it's it's kind of exploring that area there and seeing through through various elements really kind of yeah through their participation in power patronage various various ways still still very much in its early stages so but at, at such a broad comparative sweep across such a large region of, of, of Christendom uh, and a large time period as well, which is is so um, impressive. And we really look forward to, to the research that comes out of that um, project over the next um, few years. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us here on, on the podcast, Denise. That was really, really interesting discussion for me, as I'm sure it will be for our listeners as well. And just it, it remains to point towards where people can follow up your work, both through your publications um, that I mentioned earlier in historical research and the Journal of Medieval History and, and the 13th Century England 
uh, latest volume, which has uh, recently been published. Um, you've also written a blog for the Institute of Historical Research website, um, looking at your, uh, your work on queenship and royal letters that people can go to um, as well. And also to invite listeners to listen out for other podcasts in the series. We have a number of them available now on all platforms and many more to come. So thank you very much, Anais, for joining us here on the Centre for War and Diplomacy podcast. Thank you very much, Sophie, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. To hear further podcasts, please visit the CWD website, lancaster.ac.uk forward slash CWD. There you can find more on the CWD's research, events and teaching, including the MA in International and Military History.